Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, June 20th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, a lot of interesting tidbits we can discuss about the January 6th hearings, the condition of the Democratic and Republican parties as they head into 2024. Uh, But um, we have this very uh, sobering or interesting factoid or contradictory factoids from polling by ABC and Ipsos. So the headline is 60% of people think that Trump should be indicted uh, based on what has come out of January 6th. 61 or 60% or something like that. It's like, uh uh-oh. Whoa! This, this, this. These hearings are really making their case, right? They're really making their case. Then, the polling also reveals that only nine percent of the respondents are paying close attention to the hearings. So, uh, they are. You have everybody who doesn't like Trump saying he should be indicted, but in fact, the hearings are not lighting the country on fire. And people aren't really paying attention. How do we resolve these? Doesn't that suggest that um, uh, they're just answering the question based on the way they feel about Trump or whatever? Or well, how do you square asking? it? Because that poll itself, I read the poll, and the poll itself had been asking this question prior, and this is the highest result that it had gotten in a year on that question. Okay, but well, you don't have of to. Of course. Like, why would what would it get a lower number? I mean, if it got presumably, a lower number, because that would has, definitely yes. show that the presumably, hearing been no, to answer your case. question, presumably, yes, because that number started high in the immediate wake of January 6th and then has been receding ever since. So for it to bounce back up does seem to suggest that current events would be influencing public opinion one way or the other. Yeah, I don't I don't find it hard to square, to be honest, because you don't have to pay close attention in order to find out what the headlines are, and then say, oh, that's a bad headline. We should indict Trump. Okay, fair enough. So so let's drop that and say, um, what I'm struck by is that for the first time, I think since 9-11, since the 9-11 commission, the networks are carrying this live like all all the broadcast now i know no one watches broadcast networks anymore but they're all carrying it live it's not just it wasn't just the opening hearing in prime time it is being treated as though it is a an earth-breaking national event these hearings and um i would expect that they would be having a larger impact than they are but maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe the whole point here is that nothing has an impact anymore. There are no surprises. What's being what's being issued by the committee are circumstantial pieces of information that are trending toward making the case that Trump knew or should have known that his actions were going to lead to the insurrection. And unless you unless you deny the evidence or facts that it was an insurrection or say, eh, they're overreacting or whatever, then then it uh, you know, then it is a, as I say, it's sort of just strengthening the case. Uh, 
but um, there hasn't been that moment, right? There hasn't been that Alexander Butterfield, yes, we found a taping system moment that like electrified the country in, uh, during the Watergate hearings. What do you make of, I mean, does this matter? I mean, or does it, I mean, one way in which I think it could matter is that it is have the perverse effect of strengthening the Republican Trumpian spine against his ouster uh, as the titular, not titular, but as the nominal head of the party and the, and the, uh, you know, uh, prohibitive favorite for the 2024 nomination. This makes it easier for Trump, not harder, because there people will just say, oh, this is, you know, this is the mainstream media teaming up with Democrats to go at Trump because they want to kill him because they know that he'll crush Biden in 2024. Don't you think that's the likeliest outcome of this hearing politically? He's he's on his his own social media network. It's hard to remember, but he has his own social media network and he's over there, you know, clamoring for equal time. Apparently, again, the only reason why I know this is because people who follow him on this social media network, reporters who are disinclined to favor Trump, inject it into the into the more mainstream dialogue. But, yeah, he's clamoring for equal time and people are afraid that he's going to people. Republicans are afraid that he's going to um, announce his 2024 campaign before the midterm elections, thereby re-energizing Democrats in a way that they're not presently energized. So there's some scuttlebutt around that. Uh, and maybe this, you know, convinces him to jump in earlier just so that he can screech about 2020 some more. Uh, and that's quite possible that he, he would. But does that have the effect of making him more appealing to Republican voters. It certainly has the effect of making more appealing to Trump voters, but Republican voters is a broader universe. Um, so I, it's possible that this compels him to make a decision that he otherwise wouldn't, but I don't, I don't know whether it's the, the foremost deciding factor. Generally, like you say, everybody's in their own camps on, on January 6th, but as this ABC poll that we started talking about suggests, one camp is quite a bit larger than the other. Well, well I mean, to, to, to stay with a theme that I've I've been on for the past few weeks, if we're now in a place of the politics of the real politics of real life, everyday life, that cuts both ways. That doesn't only mean um, that liberals who had been focused on fantastic wish lists and idealized policy initiatives to do all sorts of fantastical things are, are the only ones who are now focused on gas prices and, and, and supply chain shortages and baby formula. Um, it also means that uh, you don't really care so much about the, if you, if you were previously inclined to care that Donald Trump was getting mistreated, uh, you now have, you also have everyday concerns that, that are, are now taking precedence. Um, and that's got to play a, a role here. See, this is very interesting because I, I was actually talking not about what Trump's strategy would be, but whether the general world of right of center opinion, <clears throat> this, this is a boneheaded mistake on the part of Democrats for two reasons. One of which is that it, it will hard, it hardens 
the Republican idea that Trump has been victimized or the conservative or the right-wing idea that Trump has been victimized and that somehow looking for another option in 2024 would be giving in to the media democratic conspiracy to destroy Trump and that they will be less likely rather than more likely to look to DeSantis or Mike Pompeo or Tom Cotton or whoever. The second part is that um, he and they, they, they don't, the Democrats don't understand that what Republicans are looking at now and what maybe independent voters are looking at now people who are going to have to, or are going to sort of make the determination here. Um, it's all in relation to Biden <clears throat> and Biden fell off his bike on Saturday. And, you know, I've fallen off a bike. Everybody can fall off a bike. People don't really fall off a bike the way he fell off that bike. I don't know if, you know, if you watch the video, you know, it looks like he had a stroke and fell off the bike. Now, granted, he didn't have a stroke and fell off the bike, but it's like he's a 79-year-old man riding a bike and he something happened in his inner ear or whatever, and he just keeled over. And the image of the president keeling over. The bike was standing still. Look. While he was standing still, that's my point. Yeah, you didn't say it, though. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. so... That's an indelible image like that. That is the kind of image that will be now if this were if you were Republican and, you know, like that's something that would appear on every more on, on every, you know, on Steve, Stephen Colbert and Trevor Noah and whoever every night for six months, the way Gerald Ford tripping on on a on a airplane uh, ladder, you know, sta staircase or <laughs> appeared in 75. Huh? George W. and the pretzel. Right. Um, I choked on a pretzel. It was a two-week news story. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, he's at least shielded a little bit, but you can't shield yourself from the internet and memes on the internet. And um, a guy to whom that happens is a guy that is, it is going to be very difficult for him to be elected president in 2024. I'm sorry. Like, that is a shackle on his ankle and it's 2022 and there will be 10 more incidents like this and they will be turned into two minute, uh, you know, YouTube clips and they can try to chase them out or cancel them or say they're misguided or they're not, you know, they're not accurately depicting information or something like that. It's not, not going to matter. And, um, and if Trump doesn't appear to be infirm, or like openly crazy, and he's the nominee. The Democrats will have strengthened Republican resolve to have Trump as the nominee, while at the same time their own candidate um, is looking like somebody who is you really can't put back in the Oval Office. Well, both of them are candidates that you can't put back in the Oval Office. I mean, I find I I struggle to see you know the the outcome where even if he runs, Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination, polling aside, which is prohibitive for him. His issue set is, as Abe says, so backward looking that it doesn't meet the measure of the moment. And it's really easy to triangulate around him. But he can have an issue set in five minutes. I know he will 
say whatever it is he wants to say and talk about whatever he wants. It's theoretical, right? No, he doesn't seem to have any interest in litigating the present set of issues. Right. But I'm just saying that uh, he can run throughout 2023 saying, open up the American oil fields. But any Republican can. Any Republican who's inclined to challenge him, which is the only obstacle, the only obstacle, anybody can get around him on the issues. It's just whether they want to incur the wrath of this very narrow set of Republican voters who are predisposed to support him over a generic. And I I, I do wonder about those voters these days. This is I I hate bringing up anecdotal things, but I, I, I can't help but think it's relevant. Every last Trumpy and super Trumpy person that I've had in my life that I've known professionally or personally now is they have both fingers fingers crossed that Trump stays out and they want DeSantis. Every last one. Right. But if what they're confronted, that's worth. If they're but, confronted with the prospect of a Trump DeSantis race, which they don't want to be, as they're telling you, what, what would they do? DeSantis. But well, that, but I don't I don't know that the, this is the problem with anecdotal. Sure, it's not stories. the problem with that. The question that DeSantis will have to answer, given that and the fact that a lot of other people will be telling him the same, is <clears throat> Biden is a rare case because in general, people everybody gets one shot at this, gets one bite at this apple, and it's all meaning running for president, like seriously. I mean, granted, Biden, this is Biden's third, this was Biden's third shot and he won. But um, you got to say, is this my moment? Like, is this, is this my lane? He's very young. Sans is 43 years old. Like, does he, does he say, as Obama did, this is it, like the opening, I can see it. Like I'm looking, I'm the quarterback and I can see the hole in the offensive and def- I can see the hole in the defensive line and I'm going to run through it. And it's a very risky thing to do. You incur the wrath of the, when Obama ran, he was incurring the wrath of the Clinton machine. That was nothing. He was, a, yeah, he was a little, he was a little insulated from it because of his race and because of uh, other, other qualities, but you know, you're taking a real risk. And what we do, and I think DeSantis is a risk taker, but you don't know. And he could say, look, if I screw this up, I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm basically in Tallahassee for the rest of my life or as long as I can be, or this is it. Like if I can topple Trump, I walk into the presidency. If I can take Trump on and beat him, this this thing is over. They can demonize me. They can yell at me. They can do whatever they can do. But he can say, <clears throat> Biden isn't the one who ended Trump. I'm the one who ended Trump. And every independent voter in America votes for DeSantis. I, I think the the Obama comparison is is perfect. I mean, I mean not, it's imperfect. Also about the same but, age, by the way. Right. But it's, it's great speaking. because it seemed extraordinarily premature when Obama did it. And uh, Obama didn't wait until Hillary was out of the picture. He pushed her out of the picture. Yeah. Right. And there's remember also, when in Republican he started circles, running. In Republican huh? circles, there's the Chris Christie syndrome, 
which they're all very strategists are very aware of and how when he delivered that speech in 2012 at the Reagan library declining to run it was the end of his political career nobody knew it right at the time he was waiting for his moment but his moment passed him by and they well, everybody he said in that. the speech this is not my moment yeah right and then when you heard him say that you kind of knew that he was done it wasn't the hug with obama or whatever but that there was a kind of you know and there were all these good reasons for him not to do it right there was this weird legislation that said that he couldn't raise money both for a presidential yeah blah 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 he couldn't raise money so he looked at it he said i i don't really think i can beat obama because he he probably could have won the republican nomination absolutely would have won the republican nomination. so he was like i don't think i can beat obama so i'm not going to do it would have been he would have been the newt gingrich of that race It was the but conservative have, alternative. Right. Around but it. you have to show courage. You have to show a willingness to put it all on the line if you're going to win the presidency. Like there, you know, it's it's the what it takes. It's Richard Ben Kramer's what it takes. Like, do you have the courage to stage a run that you have a 20? I mean, remember Trump said, I always thought this was interesting. Trump said he and Melania had talked. And that, you know, or Melania said, you're going to run and win. And he said, I get, I get, I get my, I get like it's a 20% shot, but fine. You know, it's like, it's going to cost me $50 million, but what the hell, you know? But we keep talking about this, like it's a two man race. It's a Trump DeSantis race. If this logic holds that it's, you got to go strike while the iron's hot, as it were, there will be a lot of candidates in this race. Remember, we had the same conversation around Glenn Youngkin run run now while you can while you're in while you have the spotlight on you this is your moment and there won't be another well that wins that wins trump i mean if that happens that wins trump the presidency i mean that wins trump the nomination in other words one of the reasons that obama oh yeah one of the reasons that obama was able to take hillary down was that there was only one other contestant in the race who blew up on the landing pad, like a, like crazy, you know, it was John Edwards, like, and he exploded on the landing, pad, you know, uh, in a in a in a in a in an extraordinary way. But if they had both been in the race going into two thousand and eight with different strengths, right? Edwards could play in the South, Obama could play in cities, yeah, blah 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 blah. Hillary could have threaded the needle and been the nominee. I mean, she was almost the nominee against. Obama like that wasn't an easy win for Obama over Hillary he didn't have the race sewn up until late you know I mean she won later races he won early races she won later races I mean it it seemed pretty clear that he was going to do it but it wasn't a it wasn't a lead pipe cinch that she wasn't she didn't she didn't you know curl up and die and the if the logic in the Republican Party is somebody else needs to be the nominee for president, five people can't, five credible people can't be in running against Trump. I mean, that's just, you could have one other person on the grounds that what if DeSantis blew up in the landing pad and there was a scandal or something like that. Although now these days people can jump in, you know, at any point and raise a hundred million dollars in a weekend if they have to, you know, uh, through GoFundMe or whatever, like this is, you know, it's all the logic of all this has changed, but I don't know, like, yeah, in the end, 
DeSantis, assuming Trump runs, DeSantis will be doing something very risky by running. But of course, that may make him more attractive. And the question is whether he or his people can come up with a way to run against Trump. Because well, the that idea gets now us is, back to the central premise of this conversation. Yeah. Because in it's unavoidable, even if it's subtextual, that the way you run against Donald Trump is January 6th. You don't say that. God save you if you ever say that to a Republican electorate. But the electability argument is the argument, again, having the same argument we had for the last eight years. But that's the argument. I got a different argument for you, and it is the ultimate argument, and it is the truth, what's more, which is, is this what you want? You want an 80-year-old guy running against a 77-year-old guy? I'm 44 years old. I'm not going to fall asleep in the situation room when there's a war. I mean, isn't that the electability argument, though? This candidate is unappealing to the broader general electorate? I mean, which again, which is going, and the Trump, you know, fan base will say, ah, 2016, they're the same thing in 2016. They won't talk about 2020, but 2016, you know, yeah. he was the, he was unelectable then too. Don't believe yeah. the polls. No, it's not the polls. I'm saying he'll say Trump is too old to be president. We just saw what happened when we elected somebody who was too old to be president. He fell off his bike. He's querulous. He's in, you know, he's incomprehensible. He has his people fronting for him. I honor Donald Trump's service. He was a great president when he was president and he's now too old i'm did sorry any of you see too, this they did stand you see the speech? in front of yeah did you see his speech who I, I, trump's he, he gave a, where a speech in, where over in, the weekend where in, i honestly don't know where and i don't i only saw oh, yeah it was in uh, tala it was in tennessee somewhere yeah it was kind of a campaigny speech um and i saw bits and pieces of it obviously i didn't watch the whole thing because it's generally incomprehensible but from what i saw he spent most of his time rehearsing his grievances against you know the fates he did so i'm saying in a republican primary rehearsing in a republican primary rehearsing his grievances against the fates is not the thing that you run at him for you don't say he was wrong about jan you don't say he was wrong about january that you don't say the media weren't out to get him you don't say the democrats are in a conspiracy with the media you agree you agree that nobody was as hard hard done in as Trump was and that he faced headwinds created by the liberal establishment and the popular culture that were unjust and intolerable. He's just too effing old. He's too old. And we just had a really old president and look where it got us. And I'm sorry, you're a wonderful president. You were wonderful. I would like to give you the medal of honor and have a big parade for you in your honor. And we'll name post offices after you and stuff like that, but you can't be president again. This country. Okay. I mean, I I agree with you, but I think you can tie that into a broader approach, which is that I honor your service. You did a, you did a terrific job, but we're in a new age now. And I have shown through what I've done in Florida, the proper Republican response to the new challenges to the post-pandemic world that absolutely yes and i took on the very forces who tried to destroy trump i took on disney 
you know, which is transgendering, you know, which is, uh, you know, lesbianizing Buzz Lightyear. And I took on this and I took on that and I showed, they came at me with howitzers. They said I was a murderer. They said I was killing people with my COVID policies. My state recovered faster, better. Abe and I both heard this speech that DeSantis gave. He said, I live in a free state. That was my purpose, was to make sure that the citizens of my state were free and were not subjected to the limitations on their freedom by this unelected band of public health professionals and union-led you know, crazies who wanted to make sure that children remained masked when they were two years old and didn't go to school and had no social lives and people couldn't run their businesses or go out to have a, a burger. That's who I am. That's what I did when COVID hit. So I can match Trump move for move and bit for bit, but he has to say why it is that he needs to be the nominee and not Trump. And the argument is that Trump is too old. He will be next year. When the debates start, when the debates start, he will be 78 years old. His um or 77 and a half years old. There's another part to this though. Um, so let's let's say we've 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 honed in on a good messaging strategy for DeSantis, right? There's still the the bedeviling challenge. What does he do when Trump gives him a nasty nickname? When Trump insults his family? Um, this is this is the this is the thing that no one has actually quite figured out uh, and that no one wants to have to deal with. Okay, here's my answer to that. DeSantis has achieved an independent standing with Republican voters that almost none of the people running in 2016 had. Those people had fantastic credentials, right? It was the credential bonanza. Ted Cruz, Supreme Court clerk and, you know, uh, Senator, 41 years old, Rubio, you know, defeated the sitting governor for senator and, you know, 42 years old. Jeb Bush, former governor, brother of president, all this. But they didn't have any independent standing. They weren't rock stars or superstars within. I mean, they were rock stars and superstars within the knowing party elites. But DeSantis has an independent standing and Trump goes at him too hard and people go, well, isn't he just serving the interests of the mainstream media that wants to destroy that wants to destroy DeSantis, who really fought for us. I don't know. I, I, like, yeah, Trump I don't know doesn't either. I think free, Ted huh? Cruz kind of fits that bill. No way. No I mean, way. He, he definitely had the adoration and affection of the conservative voting base, and he had sacrificed himself uh, in the eyes of you know any the elite constituencies who were after him after his 2013 stunts. So, and he you know spent the better part of his career positioning himself to be that guy. Yeah, but he was half what DeSantis is now, half. I'm just saying, DeSantis said, I have stood here taking fire from the minute that I became governor. And I'm not afraid of those people the way you were not afraid of those people. And call me anything you like. It would be interesting to see you know, a governor be able to- You know what I did? You their, know what I leverage did? Leverage their accomplishments like that because we have, we've yeah. spent the last two cycles saying, I guess accomplishments don't matter. Well, I'm not even talking about accomplishments here. I'm talking actually about fighting. If Trump's, if Trump's pedigree is he fights and they want to kill him and he fights, 
DeSantis gets to play the same card and Trump going at DeSantis claiming but what that he distinguishes didn't really him from Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz did all the fight stuff, too. And lost and lost and lost. And Correct. DeSantis won. So Cruz fought and was a loser. Well, and his father killed yeah. JFK and his wife was ugly. <laughs> And DeSantis, but that's what's going to happen to DeSantis. Jeb, it, you know, Jeb Bush did 9-11 you, by proxy. It's not as easy. It's not as easy to do it with DeSantis because there was no pandemic for Ted Cruz to make his name in. Yeah, there was De- no we've, set we've of policy prescriptions. You know, if Trump is ha- has any people around him making smart arguments, then he'll say, well, you lock down your state, too. Yeah, and he can say, and you locked the country down, as I recall. Remember when you said oh, that we're I, all going to be truth free is by no Easter? Obstacle. Yeah, Trump no, no, said, I didn't saying, want to do that. No, if, if you're saying that Trump gets to say things and yes. then there's a clear shot. Yeah, yes, well, if you come, does. no, no. <laughs> if you come back at him and say, I shut down the country, you didn't fire Fauci. You were standing there on stage with Fauci and Deborah Burks and all those people. There you go. That's this, you. This is where it's going to go. It'll be that's, the, yeah, the but that's absolutely on you. in the mud. That the is on you. You empowered those people and I fought them. They were they were in your employ and you let them set the rules. And I said, no way. I listened to Jay Bhattacharya and you listened to Anthony Fauci. You tell me who was right. I'm just saying you're, you're absolutely right. And it's going to be a miserable experience. I don't know. Is that I mean, a miserable experience? Is that not a good fight to have? <laughs> it's a, Maybe yeah, that's, that's a good fight, kind of to a have. fight to have. Yes, it has nothing to do. It's all retrospective. It has nothing to do with what we're dealing with now. Okay, but you can have fights over the past and the future. If you're DeSantis running against Trump, and Trump comes at you and says what you say he says, it is then you are you are free to do whatever you want. Remember the whole thing with Trump was. All those people decided they weren't going to engage. They weren't going to. They weren't going to lower themselves to his level. Jeb Bush, you're a wimp. Jeb Bush, I won't deign to fight you. Gee, doesn't that suggest you're a wimp? You're so low energy. So if Trump comes at DeSantis yeah, and says, but then you had Mitt Romney or Mitt Romney, um, Marco Rubio suggesting that he had a, a small penis. Yeah, but that was recall. already that was <laughs> that was a that was all, it was already too late for Rubio. That was after the New Hampshire debacle, right? But Which the lesson there is he was you can't, a dead man you can't fight Trump on his own terrain without. No, no, this is a policy. This you're you're yeah. saying he'll give him a Good nickname, agree, yeah. and then I'm saying Republicans really, really like DeSantis. You know, they really like DeSantis, and you know, after the break, we can talk about like. So you know whether we can talk about Dan Crenshaw and the Texas Republicans, which we should, because we're going to talk a little about the Texas Republicans, but so. Uh, the idea of, you know, assigning nicknames to people and, you know, and and discounting them with with cutesy nicknames is all well and good if the guy if the guy can't fight back. So before we do that, let me talk to you about uh, our first advertiser today, Donors Trust. Um, the tax friendly way to simplify your charitable giving without compromising your values. Look, you know that cancel culture is coming for your charitable dollars, right? Big banks that sponsor charitable savings accounts or donor-advised funds, as they're formerly called, have a history or of slow walking or altogether blocking donations to conservative charities. Charities that have found themselves in the crosshairs of the woke mob include the Family Research Council, the National Review Institute, the National Rifle Association Foundation, the Liberty Council, Turning Point USA, and others. Clearly, not every donor-advised fund provider is safe 
for conservatives. So let Donors Trust help manage your charitable giving. Donors Trust was built with commentary listeners in mind, people who believe limited government and constitutional rights are worth fighting for. If you already have a donor advised fund, consider opening a rollover account. It can be done in three simple steps by calling our friends at Donors Trust. The Donors Trust team will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. Partner with the fund that matches your values. To learn more, download their prospectus at www.donorstrust.org commentary. That's www.donorstrust.org commentary. To align your giving with your values, visit www.donorstrust.org commentary. And you know where you do that from? You do it from that chair. You do it from your office chair. And you know what chair you're supposed to get. It's the X chair. You know that already. So important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day, even if you're switching donor-advised funds. X chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, but it's honestly my favorite place in the house to sit for any reason, because not only does X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL offer the ultimate customized support, but X chair can even give me a massage or help heat me up or cool me down. And now thanks to X chair's new FS360 armrest, I can even adjust my armrest to the perfect position. All these unique X chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X chair. So go to X chair commentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair commentary.com or call one 844 x chair for a hundred dollars off your order. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. X chair commentary.com. So uh, the Texas Republicans met over the weekend and Texas is a very interesting Republican state uh, because it's the paradigmatic state of the, uh, change in American politics over the last half century. Um, Rock-ribbed democratic state, uh, you know, uh, one democratic, one Republican congressman um, from reconstruction, one Republican congressman from reconstruction until the 80s, uh, a a man who served one term named George H.W. Bush. Um, And uh, and then, you know, the culture war hit, uh, the oil embargo hit, all kinds of things hit. And the state starts moving right in the 80s, but basically ballasted by small businessmen, suburbanites uh, who thought the Democratic Party had gone too far, was anti-business, was hostile to the oil and gas exploration industry, which is the heart and soul of 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 Texas's wealth. And uh, but was. Rather centrist to light centrist. John Tower uh, was a senator from Texas. Phil Graham moved from the moved from the Democrats to the Republicans and became a senator from Texas. But these were not like culture warrior guys. Like Phil Graham was a budget guy. John Tower was a de- defense guy. Um, but uh, there were uh, inklings and penumbras and emanations that, uh, as the as the decades went on, that um, harder line culture warrior types were uh were about to start dominating and in the 90s uh the harris county republican party uh harris county being uh where houston is um was suddenly taken over uh like there was a basically a pr- the presage to all the primary challenges that uh, took over the party in the 2010s um local activists went in and 
got themselves elected to the Harris County Republican Party board and and basically took over uh, Texas's most populous area or whatever, richest and what, and you know started advocating for very hardline culture war stuff. And Texas has been going in this interesting direction ever since. Obviously, George W. Bush kind of combined a certain type of moderate republicanism from his father's generation with a born-again Christian glaze. But he was, of course, a compassionate conservative, pro-immigration, you know, blah, 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 blah. So fast forward to 2022 and the Texas Republican Party's meeting this weekend and the platform of the Texas Republican Party now says that the election of 2020 was illegitimate. And um, uh, there's a lot of other stuff in there um, objected to homosexuality, right? Yeah. Called it abnormal. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. Homosexuality is abnormal. By voice vote. Right. And um, and at and at this event, uh, Dan Crenshaw, uh, Republican from Texas, uh, very conservative voting record, and of course a man who lost an eye fighting for this country, uh, gets tagged uh, based on something that um, Tucker Carlson in one of his more loathsome and disgusting moments. Tucker referred to him as Patch McCain. I don't even remember why he called him Patch McCain. I think it's the Ukraine he, uh, support for the Ukrainian resistance to a Russian, Russian invasion and occupation that is, uh, you know, a, a yeah, crime against he's against and Tucker is for. Right. So, um, yeah. So he calls Dan Crenshaw Patch McCain. Now, I want to remind you that a, a couple of years earlier, uh, Pete Davidson on SNL made a joke about uh, Dan Crenshaw's eye patch, and uh, there was an explosion of rage uh, on social media from right and left, and Tucker and everybody else. And Cren- and Pete Davidson apologized to Crenshaw, and Crenshaw appeared on SNL to say, "This is what we need more of: is like more civil exchanges between right and left." Um, but then it apparently became okay for Tucker Carlson to defame, you know, somebody who fought for his country, unlike Tucker, who would, you know, have crawled under a table. So I know Tucker, and I know, you know, it's not that he would have crawled under a table. I would have crawled under the table also. But, you know, you don't do that. You don't do that. He lost the eye in the service of this country. Like, you know, it's disgusting. And who knows who these guys were who did the eye patch McCain chant. But um, it kind of makes you sick right like is there anything to be said about this i mean i think i patch mccain is the coolest nickname you could have <laughs> you know? right I, I think he's 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 earned both parts of that nickname uh very admirably uh frankly and you should well, make fair you enough. Should print up good... t-shirts right well it, we don't want to be just dis- i don't want to be dismissive of the significance of what the the bubbling undercurrents are within the Republican firmament here. Um, but it is a party platform and party platforms are notoriously unrepresentative of how those parties respectively govern, both of which have found themselves in the national level and certainly at the state level, find themselves endorsing radical sentiments because they are populated by radicals um, that don't 
translate into governing um, governing documents, governing platforms, or any sort of activity on the on the part of the the partisans who actually occupy offices. So, well, it's I don't want to be dismissive of it. Nevertheless, how much relevance does this have to how the parties were actually govern? History suggests, which is not an indicator of future performance, history suggests that these documents are full-throated uh, expressions of sentiment that never materialize in practice. Okay, so so this isn't an apocalyptic moment. I mean, what it does suggest is that the world of... Um, it's interesting because there are two sides of right-wing activism in the wake of the pandemic. So one side is the let's get us let's get ourselves elected to school boards and you know like let's let's go get ourselves involved our hands dirty in the inner workings of local and state um elections and things like that because that's where policy gets made and we haven't been paying enough attention those people are taking over and we are going to not let that happen. Then there's the other form of activism which is Let's get elected so that we can make sure that we can discredit election results when we don't like them. Uh, you know, let's take over Secretary of State offices and state houses with the, the with with the with the idea that uh, because Democrats always cheat and steal every election, we're just going to go cheat and steal every election back. And th this is like you know id and superego or something like that. I mean, it is like one is this ex extraordinarily productive. Um, creation of a new kind of citizen politician. Um, and the other is people who have been activated through uh, conspiracy, hysteria, and mania. And I, I, it's hard to say which one is going to win out. I mean, Noah, you're saying basically we shouldn't pay attention to the Texas platform. Not at all. I've, I've yeah. said twice. That yeah, I know. It's not something but you know what I'm saying. Anymore. But you're saying you're saying that it's the extremes here, it's ne never practically becomes policy. So, but it's a question of what it represents. This is all very interesting and kind of problematic for me because it challenges some premises that I've recently latched onto. But the there is sort of a renewed appetite for pushing the cultural envelope in a way that we haven't seen on, on the part of the right that we haven't seen for the better part of this decade. I mean, everybody, there's a, a sentiment abroad that Donald Trump was something of a culture warrior, and he was. But during his administration, he helped the right get past a lot of its conventional republic or uh, culture wars divorce abortion even transgenderism to a degree because in the campaign he came out in favor of uh the bathroom controversy in north carolina where they're trying to make this bathrooms uh you know a strict gender based on your birth gender uh and in, in law and he opposed that um and there's all this kind of culture warring does did subside on the right during his administration, the conventional ones, he he was much more in favor of um, litigating new culture wars that were more or less limited to uh, extremely online conservative activists who were following the day to day controversy of whatever the moment was. But the really conventional, traditional stuff did sort of like fall by the wayside. And now, especially in the wake of this leaked draft ruling uh, on the uh, Dobbs case and the abortion case, you've seen quite a lot of uh, enthusiasm for really uh, aggressive culture warring on the part of the right. Uh, and, you know, obviously we've been talking about DeSantis. DeSantis is indicative of that because there isn't a cultural controversy that he won't weigh in on. And the Florida legislature will assist him even to the degree that it contravenes the constitution. Uh, but we've seen new enthusiasm on the part of the right for this sort of real uh, aggressive cultural revanchism.
uh, in ways that we haven't for the better part of a decade. Well, Trump, Trump got a pass, not only because he was Trump and he was, you know, in the crosshairs and all of that. And then he did weird culture war stuff like the, you know, there are good people on both sides, Charlottesville stuff. But he got three Supreme Court nominations and he nominated three, you know, people with who were uh, who were comforting and fine for the activist culture war. Right. And so that that is way more important than any extremely online policy could have been in his absence and in the absence of any more such activity, particularly since the court is now six to three and changing the balance of the court either would mean, you know, this ridiculous legislation to increase the size of the court or incredible, incredibly fortuitous things happening that will allow Biden somehow to get two nominations and get them through this, the Senate before Republicans take over um, and block that from happening. Um, but yeah, so now now there's just this question of how how eager it's going to be interesting to see, like how eager a state like Florida is going to be and legislators in Florida are going to be to pass post Dobbs legislation restricting abortion. Like I, I would not I would not make that. I w- it's not going to be like Oklahoma where they are effectively going to ban abortions. Not necessarily. Because if, if Texas is any indication, they're going to go way beyond what even their voters want. One of the right, things I'm that happened Florida in this is Texas different... convention is John Cornyn got booed for his participation in an effort to create some legislation around uh, new restrictions on guns, mostly right. on mental health. I mean, these are the mildest of possible restrictions. I haven't seen any poll. That suggests Texas voters or any voters, a, a majority of those voters disapprove of these efforts. But right. activists certainly do. The activists who populate party conventions certainly do. The activists yeah, who booing. populate legislatures yeah. certainly do. So, yeah, will they go beyond what their voters want? Absolutely. Well, again, we it's, there, there are 50 states and there are different states and and this applies this applies across the board and we'll we'll hear all about the restrictive abortion laws and we won't hear anything about the permissive abortion laws and we're going to see a lot of those in blue states right um but just to jump back to texas for a second i to me the real poison of of the platform here is is there um claiming uh, that that the 2020 election and it was officially illegitimate because that substantiates the, the the democratic argument that uh, Republicans are waging a war on democracy. And that's an, that's an argument that despite all the, the fireworks and, and this huge campaign to get it across, I don't actually think ultimately resonated with, with uh, uh, American voters more generally. And why actually give it substance that, that could be um, applied broadly to the GOP? I have an interesting scenario for you that we can sort of uh, close the show with. So it's November, 2022 and we're in Georgia and there's an election in Georgia between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, just as there was in 2018. And it's close. What does Stacey Abrams do this time? Stacey Abrams claim that 
Republican efforts at voting restriction and this and that and the other thing denied her her legitimate victory as the governor of Georgia was a trial run for what Trump did in 2020. The entire Democratic Party is now screaming about threats to democracy. What happens when Democrats are tempted to make the claim that an election was stolen from them in 2022? Have this, has this now been denied them? Or will they do it anyway? Scenario question. Don't everybody jump in at once. Yeah, no, probably not. I mean, she's not, she's not dumb. And that would be dumb. (laughs) She's demonstrated a willingness to subordinate her activism and what she thinks riles up a crowd to political best practices as indicated by the um, boycotting of the all-star game by MLB. Um, She instigated that. She, she made that happen in part. And then when they did it, she objected to it. Interesting. I totally, but of course, she objected to it because she wanted to run again in 2022. Right. This is she the was, end of her run. An instinct this is the end self of her preservation took right. over. Yeah. If she loses this time, that's that. That's the end of her electoral ambitions. That's two elections in which she will have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and lost. You don't get a third bite at that apple, even if you're Stacey Abrams. So you just become kind of like a martyr just a general martyr and you get added to boards and you give speeches and you write some more romance novels. I don't know. Abe. Yeah, I disagree. I think she'll do it again. And, and uh, because it's an arms race, uh, the, the other side doing it doesn't mean we, 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 that Avenue is now foreclosed to you. It means now you do it, you do it harder. And, and, and when you do it, you say, yeah, but, but in my case, it's true. Well, I, I do think though, that will be, a, that will create a aha moment and nananana boo boo moment that will be actually pretty hard for Democrats to deal with. And it won't just be there, you know, it could be Pennsylvania. I mean, the circumstances are rife for contested elections. The, we have very weird races this year. We have the uh, J.D. Vance, Tim Ryan race in Ohio, um, which Ohio nonetheless trending very red could be very close. We have of Fetterman and Oz, um, where Fetterman should probably walk away with it, but of course, you know, is like on a, you know, on a defibrillator somewhere. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and uh, all kinds of weird stuff, you know, going on. And so you, you'll have, you may have multiple contested elections. We had a couple this year, right? That were, but were contested for obvious reasons because of you know, the the McCormick versus Oz, uh, Pennsylvania primary, like, because that was won by what, 800 votes, 700 votes, something like that. I mean, out of out of millions cast. I mean, I don't know, be just fun stuff to watch for um, as we watch the world burn. Uh, I want to uh, end the show by commending to you, as I often do, David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, every single day. We are watching the economic picture of the United States and the projected picture worsen and the conditions for consumers and ordinary people worsen. And uh, if you want to know why this is happening, what the, what the architecture of uh, economics uh, shows us uh, that what is happening now was almost inevitable given some of the choices that have been made over the last couple of years, 
David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, is the perfect guide. Let 250 lessons in economics, human flourishing, and human dignity, uh, supported by great quotes from great thinkers, great economists, great theologians. Uh, it is instructive beyond belief, and it is helpful beyond belief at this very, very, very complicated moment. So that's Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, runs, look, he's investing $3.5 billion of other people's money, and they trust him, and you should trust him too. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths, get it today, wherever you get your fine books. And tomorrow, we will be discussing Noah Rothman's fantastic lead essay in the July-August commentary, which will be out sometime today, called You Are What You Don't Eat. So if you want to prepare... Go to commentary.org later today, read Noah's essay, and we'll be discussing it. Although, I got to say, we also, you know, tomorrow, Supreme Court decisions are coming down. We've got two or three major cases that aren't even the Dobbs abortion case, uh, including some of this uh, administrative law stuff that um, uh, that the New York Times finally discovered and had a hysterical crap fit about on Sunday that, you know, the justices may be interested in the idea that legislature should make law and not un unelected executive agency officials. Uh, and, uh, and this is the thing that is terrifying Democrats the most because of course, unless unelected agency officials make rules about global warming, the planet is gonna blow up uh, and turn into the sun and explode. So uh, we'll be, we may have to talk about some of that tomorrow. Um, but until then, Thanks for listening, and for Abe and Noam, John Bonhortz, keep the candle burning.